Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Wanjira Mathai, is a Kenyan environmental and civic leader. She is the chair of the Wangari Mathai Foundation, which is named after her mother, who in 2004 won the Nobel Peace Prize for her work for environmental justice, including founding the Greenbelt Movement. Much of Wanjira's work focuses on the intersection of women's empowerment and environmental sustainability, and we kick off with a discussion about her work with a group called the Partnership on Women's Entrepreneurship in Renewables, or WPower. And much of this conversation discusses the challenges and opportunities around renewable energy in the developing world, where some of the more interesting and innovative things are happening. We also discuss the work of her mother, including the founding of the Greenbelt Movement. And Wanjira opens up about the ways in which her mother's life and work has influenced her own career path. My conversation with Wanjira Mathai is presented in partnership with the Global Challenges Foundation, whose aim is to contribute to reducing the main global problems and risks that threaten humanity. Last year, the Global Challenges Foundation held an open call to find new models of global cooperation better capable of handling the most pressing global risks. In May this year, at the New Shape Forum in Stockholm, the top proposals will be presented publicly and further refined through discussions with key thought leaders and experts. A $5 million prize will be awarded to the best ideas that re-envision global governance for the 21st century. Wanjira Mathai is a Global Challenges Foundation ambassador, and in this conversation, we discuss this prize and why new ideas for global governance are so important for environmental justice in Kenya and around the world. I've posted a link to the Global Challenges Foundation on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And one quick note for me before we begin, I've started to more frequently post bonus episodes for premium subscribers to the podcast. And the most recent episode I posted takes a look at a recent procedural vote at the United Nations that I think demonstrates the Trump administration's declining influence on the Security Council. It's about an eight-minute musing by me about this curious thing that happened at the United Nations on March 19th that went mostly underreported or unreported, but I think nonetheless has broader, profound implications. To access that bonus episode, all the other bonus episodes, plus other great rewards, you can click on the link in the description field of this podcast episode or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to become a premium subscriber and support the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And now here is my conversation with Wanjira Mathai. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization 
hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. WPOWER is actually an acronym. It stands for the Partnership for Women's Entrepreneurship in Renewables. And it's it's a project that was started in 2013, uh, mainly looking at this issue of women's role in the clean energy value chain. There's a, a very strong understanding that uh, renewable energy, clean energy for cooking and lighting, are really centrally um, around women's lives and women's roles in the homestead. And so the mission really of WPOWER is to promote the central role that women must play, not can play, must play in this value chain of clean energy. And because the the reason um, it, it's, it talks about the central role of women in the clean energy value chain is that they are already involved in especially the use of clean energy and very often very little involved in the earlier elements of the value chain in manufacturing, in design, and certainly not in, in the marketing and entrepreneurship of it. So the goal that we can both empower women economically through entrepreneurship ventures around clean energy and at the same time transform how they live and and how their families and communities thrive with with energy uh, access are two we believe very potent um, recipes so for, for for change can, can you walk me through what is that that value chain what is the the start and end of of that chain the the very start of the chain is the design so the design of technologies whether uh, cooking or lighting so solar lights um, clean cook stoves and and the the reason the design phase this early part of the value chain is important is that everywhere in the world people cook at least three meals a day and so we need to make sure that the technologies that are available for them to cook these meals to survive are actually appropriate they are appropriate for the food that is being cooked they are appropriate for the for the um, uh, the, the kitchens that are being utilized, and most importantly, that they do not emit the toxins that many clean, uh, cooking technologies e- emit today, and many ways that people cook uh, cause cause um, mor- mor- morbidity. And so we believe that the design phase of the value chain, which is the earliest phase of the value chain, must necessarily involve the input of women, because they're the ones who know what technologies they want to see, what challenges they face, and most importantly, actually, why they do not adopt certain technologies. One of the biggest challenges that we face, I'll tell you an interesting story, a dear friend of the Greenbelt Movements um, and my friend, uh, Dr. Peg Snyder, a woman who's been in the, the women and energy sector for many, many years. She told me 60 years ago when she was involved in the founding of Unifem, which is now UN Women, she was the founding director of Unifem. And at that time, they were already dealing with clean cooking. And clean cooking at that time, 60 years ago, was a challenge that we are talking about in much the same way today. So when I met her not too many years ago, she asked me, are you still working on clean cooking, there's a 
challenge with the adoption and, and the utilization of clean cooking technologies. And we need to understand why. So the design of these technologies is extremely important because that may have something to do with why women are not adopting them as fast as we would like. So can, 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 I, can I just sort of perhaps stop you there? Because I'm actually very well acquainted with this issue of, of clean cook stoves. My, um, my, uh, one of my projects, my, my website, UN Dispatch, is supported by the United Nations Foundation, which is one of the founding mm. members of the Global Alliance for Clean Cook Stoves. Of course. And I know yes. you're on on you're an ambassador. You you are one of the the leaders of, of this global alliance for clean cook stoves. Exactly. Uh, can you just for people who who are not aware of this issue, explain what dirty cook stoves are and why they ought to be replaced with clean cook stoves? Explain the the, the problem a little bit yeah. for people who are In not aware. Very simple. Exactly. In very simple terms, Robert. It it the fact that cooking kills. Everybody, as I said in the very beginning of, of this um, program, cooks at least three or more meals a day. And the fact that there are some people in this world who cook in ways that cause them harm and eventually kill them is extremely disturbing. It's a respiratory illness, we should say, mostly. It's, it's... A respiratory illness. But we know that four million people die due to illnesses and complications related directly to indoor air pollution that is associated with how they cook their meals. And so 4 million people around the world, a million of those in India alone, in my country, Kenya, we're talking about 15,000 people who die due to complications related to indoor air pollution related to the way they cook. And so this is a real problem. If in the ranking of the World Health Organization, the, those pulmonary illnesses and, and morbidity comes at top five in the leading causes of death. And so we really have to pay attention to this issue. And that's why the Global Alliance for Clean Cookstores was established. It was initially established to to raise awareness about the issue of, of, of clean cooking and why it's important. Well, in the early phases of this uh, of the alliance, there was a lot of research with the World Health Organization and other organizations just trying to make the case, raise awareness about the fact that this is important. Look at the, the, the morbidity and mortality that is caused directly because of the, the, the smoke and the, and the toxins in that smoke. And then, of course, came the phase of how can we use market approaches to, to trigger the demand and supply so that this becomes a market-driven approach. And I think that the first phase of the alliance, we're going into our third phase now, the first and the second phases of the alliance have been tremendously successful in especially bringing this issue of clean cooking and fuels and the, and the, the challenges they, they bring and certainly the opportunities they bring to center stage. So that has been the, the first part of this. Now we are talking about it. I can tell you 10 years ago, nobody was talking about this issue. Today, we know, uh, as more and more research is becoming available, the impact it has, uh, exposure to indoor air pollution for children under the age of five, and the impact it has later in life. We also know for sure that the, the exposure, especially in the early years, is cumulative. It does not go away. And so the research is getting stronger and stronger. And I think one of the most common pieces of research that came out uh, recently had to do with the fact that outdoor air pollution 
because we are now talking about the some of the the dangers of outdoor air pollution is being influenced quite heavily by indoor air pollution and a lot of that indoor air pollution is coming from the way we cook and so i think a lot of this evidence building and certainly the 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 consolidation and the opportunities coming from um the market based approach of supply and how we create a demand for these fuel has been one of the success and 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 that's and and, and that's in part uh where where w power it it seems come in is to include women at all stages of of this process and uh, can you give an example um of how women's participation say in the design of of a cook stove um made sort of a meaningful change in in the design or functionality of, of of the cook stove absolutely i'll give you an example in in ghana uh, one of the, the earlier cookstoves, just to show you that the design of a cookstove is not uniform. The way cook and the way different people cook around the world depends upon the stoves and the fuels that they have. And so there's a lot of in big pots um, and, and certainly a lot of long term. And a lot of cookstoves that were coming out in the early, the improved cookstoves were quite small. So in a country like Ghana, where the pots tend to be rounded at the bottom the cook required to hold that pot and ensure that there's no spillage and certain any accidents associated is a completely different stove from a flat bottomed pot in kenya and so the design has to be very specific to the needs of those communities and a lot of times that is only evident for the by those who are actually cooking those meals and that is often women and so involving them in the early stages of design is critically important if you want um those technologies to actually be used and absorbed so and you had asked earlier about the, the value design is the first phase of that value chain then manufacture of course and this again that that um, you're involving women in a process that will impact them more than anybody else. And then the third phase of that value chain is what we would call the marketing phase. So the, the entrepreneurship phase, who sells these, these technologies. And the reason we have been as WPAR promoting women's uh, involvement in entrepreneurship is that we have quite strong evidence now that women's involvement in the in in any economic opportunity benefits the community uh, where they live and certainly they are families. I think that research is showing the 30, the Global Alliance has some research that shows that the women invest nine, up to 90% of their income back into the family or into the communities. And, and there are a number of hours they save by having to spend less time collecting fuel. They spend five hours a day collecting fuel. This is reduced significantly with more efficient cook stoves. And, and they can tell this story. The marketing of, of any technology is deepened when, we, when you can tell a more personal story about it. And women, as entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. research in Kenya showed, and this was a global alliance research, that women outsold, given the opportunities, women in sales outsold their male counterparts three to one. Mm -hmm. So there's some very strong evidence coming out that suggests women in, in entrepreneurs in this sector is good for business. So, so I am reaching you in in Nairobi, uh, the capital of, of Kenya, which is the economic powerhouse of of the region. And I'm wondering if you can speak perhaps more broadly to some interesting trends you're seeing 
in the use of renewable or the development of renewable energies in, in Kenya more broadly? Well, I have to say that, especially in the solar sector, I would be hard pressed to find a place that is more vibrant hmm. in terms of the use and the, the just the, the 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 visibility of solar technology almost at all stages, massive large scale solar projects, but also for and, and more of interest to W Power is the, the use of solar in homes for lighting and the the innovations that are coming out one you know w power is a partnership organization and some of our partners uh, are doing some incredible work in in um in the sector i, I mentioned in particular um i think i'm going to have to remember i think solar kiosk um i'll remember the name but there was a group of uh, barefoot power barefoot power has come up with amazing technologies that involve very aspirational um, elements like televisions powered by solar, uh, refrigerators powered by solar, freezers powered by solar. Hmm. And you begin television, as I said. So you begin to see solar not only in the more traditional lighting and very simple lighting, but in more sophisticated aspirational technologies like televisions and refrigerators. Well, why is that? Beginning why, 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 yeah. Why do you think Kenya is, is the hub of this? There's just a demand. Mm-hmm. Um, why Kenya is the, is the hub of this is, is not very clear to me. But I know for sure um, that there has been great interest in entrepreneurship in the sector in Kenya. And I think that it's just the market is prepared there's um there's the need is there is great the economic opportunities the spending power is um is quite high so i think that the the recipe is right for the proliferation of solar in kenya uh, there's there's so many new and 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 obviously the innovations new innovations around solar like i've mentioned uh, the aspirational technologies but you have organizations like like uh, safaricom the the um, and maybe that's another thing. Safaricom's innovation with mobile money that is creating real innovations in how um, power is disseminated. And so you have organizations that are investing in pay as you go. And Pago systems are now quite um, quite popular in Kenya. So I think that the, the, there's just the right formula economically and suddenly the the the, the right environment. Um, certainly the policy environment is right for solar to grow. And it's it's growing by leaps and bounds. So the, this is actually leads me into a question that I actually had pegged for later in, in the conversation um, after we talked about your mother's work and, and the Greenbelt movement. But this kind of leads very nicely into, I think, a conversation about your work uh, as being a GCFA, Global Challenges Foundation ambassador. Um you know, part of, of the, uh, New Shape Prize is all about new opportunities to take on the great global challenges of our days through new ways that we organize ourselves and, and the world. And it, it sounds just coming from your description of Kenya's renewable sector that this is a great source of, of optimism for you, that this could be one, one way in which, um, that, that, that Kenya's sector could be sort of an example for the world in, in a way. I agree. I agree completely. I'm I'm really honored to be part of the Global Challenges Foundation and in particular involved in the New Shape Prize. And, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I think 
you know, to be in a country like Kenya where um, the challenge of, of lighting and certainly in any country you cannot develop if you do not have access to, to power and electricity, to have such real opportunities coming from renewable energy and to have, uh, as in many other countries, but certainly in Kenya, the cost of solar go below the cost of electricity for the first time in, in, in decades, you have an opportunity in this country to see renewables leapfrog much like we saw with mobile telephony. And I think that creates really exciting opportunities, especially in the in the day of climate change. And I think that's why the Global Challenges Foundation understands that if we can come and put minds together and think about some of the major global challenges we face, a lot of which are around um, uh, how humans are impacting. And I think that was the founder, Laszlo, one of the things that inspired him was just the fact that it was humans that were for the very first time impacting the ecosystem in, that they that they depend on in ways that were um, self destructive and that that there's something needed to be done. But I, I mean, it's a, it's a great time, and I see it here with the so, solar uh, technology and proliferation and how how it's changing lives. Well, well can, can I ask how can we as an international community do a, a better job of perhaps reorganizing how we are structured to empower sectors like the the renewable energy sector in, in Kenya and and frankly in other developing countries as well. You know, one of the challenges I find with uh, at least for the time that we've been working on on this uh, renewable energy sector it the the fact that we do not have the the critical mass of of um of initiatives or let's say marketers for this sector to create enough of a leap like we saw with with mobile telephony we like to use mobile telephony as an example because it really showed how you can go with the right investments with the right uh, financial environment, you can literally trigger a revolution in a sector. And so we we know, for example, that the awareness of 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 the technologies and why they're important is great. Accessibility is not that great, but we need to continue to work on financial, uh, creative financial uh, mechanisms that will make it more more accessible to people. Affordability is an issue. The technologies are just not affordable for the people who need them most. Most of the time we're talking about a price point of about 40 or $50 for a cook stove. But when you look at the people who invest in that cook stove, they're earning $2, $3 a day, maybe even less. And at the moment, begin to see these technologies more as aspirational technologies and not so much as things that they need for their daily survival. And so the, the, the issue of affordability is one that I would, I would invest a lot more time and money in. How do hmm. we get more, um, how do we decost the price of some of these technologies? And a lot of that sometimes has to do with some of the bigger players deciding that this is worth investing in. And in my mind, I always think of, of um, how initially phones were really expensive. Mm -hmm. Mobile phones were really expensive to have. But today in Kenya, you can get... And gigantic as well. Yeah. yeah, and massively gigantic. Today you can get a phone that plays the radio and, and, and is almost a smartphone. You doesn't have, even have to be a smartphone for a fraction of, of, of um, what it costs uh, 
even a years before, let's say five years ago, today the technologies are even cheaper. So that the costing of, of mobile telephone is extremely deep. And so just about everybody can afford them. And you can see in Kenya how it has transformed how we communicate, how we exchange financial services have, have gone mobile, most of them. You have a situation where people are marketing uh, between each other, using the, the the price points that are being presented, the mobile platform has completely changed how you do business in Kenya, and that's well established around the world. What, what uh, does the what is the equivalent? We ask ourselves often in this sector, what is the equivalent of that two twenty five dollar phone or that two dollar phone in in uh, in the cook stoves? Where is that decosting for cook stoves? It doesn't exist at the moment. Well, what, what's interesting to me is that the sharp reduction of prices of mobile phones happened, I think, largely due to technological innovations in like Silicon Valley. Um, but it, it seems to me that, that there is almost like a democratization of solar entrepreneurship and solar technology in, in, in the renewable sectors. And if we're going to see the kind of reduction of, of cost uh, for renewables, it might not be a, an innovation that happens in the developed world in the United States, you know, it could happen in India, it could happen in Kenya. Uh, and that's sort of what I think is most exciting to, to me about this sector. Absolutely. And that's that that it happens is what's important where it happens, maybe not so important. And I agree with you, um, some of the opportunities in some of the countries where this is important, you know, in some of the countries in the West, this is just not an issue. The 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 clean cooking, solar lighting may be for different reasons and, and certainly larger scale projects. But at this level, it's really not so much of an issue. And I agree the innovations may come from elsewhere. Most important is that they actually happen. Uh, so I wanted to, to shift gears a, a little bit. Many of my listeners will be uh, aware of the work of, of your mother, and, and you are now chair of the Wangari Mathai Foundation, named, of course, after your, your mother, the, the late Nobel laureate who founded the Greenbelt Movement. Uh, exactly. Could you um, introduce uh, listeners to the Greenbelt Movement if they're not aware of how and, and why did your mother start it? Yes, the Greenbelt Movement story is, is really a wonderful story because the Greenbelt Movement <clears throat> is an organization today that works largely with women to restore degraded landscapes around the country. But its genesis was really around um, my mother thinking about why the landscapes around places where she grew up had so changed and transformed. She was uh, a young professor at the University of Nairobi in the early, uh, so mid 70s, and the, Mex the the women's conference in Mexico in 1977, I believe, was get they were getting ready around the world. Women were getting ready and caucusing around what their agendas would be in Mexico. And I remember my mother telling the story that she, as a university academic member of staff, one of the only one of the few women academic members of staff, was involved in in representing university women's issues at the caucus that was happening in Nairobi. So when she attended this meeting, she attended as a, as a member of academic staff. And so she had issues, equal pay for equal work. She had issues like, you know, insurance for, for every staff member and not only for men. They were facing some very real issues, um, as she thought, that were, that pertained to academics. But when she went there, she heard women much like her mother, 
presenting issues of concern to them. And the issues that they were presenting uh, were issues like lack of water. They had to walk further and further away to find water. They were unable to secure the nutrition for their children because they, the food they were producing was not nutritious and was not what my mother remembered as a child eating. And of course, the, the issue of fuel, they had to walk further and further away to get fuel. So the three issues of water, fuel, and food and nutrition really struck her as very basic issues. She was a biologist um, by, by training. And so she began to think about how come these issues are issues now? They were not issues when I was growing up. And very quickly, she decided, well, I'm, I want to talk to these women and see if we can plant trees, because trees, it seemed to her, would address a lot of these issues. And that was really the genesis of the Greenbelt movement, how she gathered the women, and much to the chagrin perhaps of university women, she abandoned the issues she had come to, to represent and felt that these issues that the women were presenting were more important. And it really began for her the journey that lasted uh, now for the Greenbelt Movement 40 years. It was really her life's work, the founding of the Greenbelt Movement, mobilizing thousands of women around the country like the ones she had met in that caucus to begin restoring their landscapes for their own use. And I think the, the, the trigger for her was how can we organize women into cells, into groups, so that they inspire each other. They work together to create masses of nurseries that would then restore uh, the landscapes by planting trees. And they started by planting trees around their own homesteads, planting fruit trees to provide fruit, but at the same time planting fodder trees to, to feed their animals, trees that they would use later to to use the timber. And it was just became, it transformed in the process of them planting those trees. It transformed their lives economically, but also just spiritually, you know, how the landscape changes, things started to happen, biodiversity came back, birds came back, and then life just begins to to look different. And it, it just became a movement around the country. Well, well that, that's, that's my question. It, it seems also, um, you know, this movement took on some important political dimensions as as well in terms of, of women's empowerment. And I guess I'm, I'm sort of just curious to learn from you, um, having obviously grown up uh, around this movement, like, how did that transition happen from planting trees in, in a systematic way to becoming like a, a powerful social movement and, and political movement that, you know, that, that was perhaps a, a little um, upsetting or unsettling to traditional power structures in the country. Like, what was that? What was that transition? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. And, and it is, I think, the, the the interesting part of this story is that it was not intended. I think the the fact that the, the movement started as a grassroots movement of women restoring their landscapes and, and appreciating green spaces and beginning to appreciate the commons, planting trees wherever they could, on their farms, in schools, on public land. The, the, the movement necessarily became attached and, and invested in public spaces. And so the minute any public space 
was threatened with um, a building coming up or or just any news that uh, public space or public park or public forest was going to be misappropriated, people would run to the Greenbelt movement and and tell them that I I heard I heard this and I want you to know about it and do something mm-hmm. about it. Now I tell people one of my all-time favorite stories about the Greenbelt movement and and its commitment to the commons was a story about a young a young law school student uh, couldn't have been uh, more than early 20s probably even late teens who who was in in law school at the University of Nairobi and he overheard a, a story uh, probably over the dinner table of what was going to happen to our park that is the only park we have in the middle of our city which would be equivalent to Central Park in New York Hyde Park in London and and he heard them talking about they're going to put up this 60-story building. And, and I, I believe his father was probably prospect the one prospecting the park to see whether this would be possible and what was going to be the geological uh, needs for, for this to happen. And he essentially felt the discomfort of that conversation enough to trigger him to go to the Greenbelt Movement and present this information quite confidentially to my mother, Wangari Mathai, and at the time telling her, please don't say I'm the one who told you, but this is what I know, and he presented documents. And that began the campaign to protect public spaces. And that's why I said it was not really intentional. And I tell people often that the the environmental became political in in quite a seamless way. This became a query. We need Uhuru Park. We need Karura Forest. Why are these green spaces being used for other than um, public access and and relaxation? And, And so these queries became an advocacy venture because it became who are you asking? And of course, the more you peeled the layers off, the more you realized you were dealing with the, the, the state and, and the powers of the day. But I think that the, the blessing, obviously, was that the, the Greenbelt movement was, was, um, was full of very courageous women and, and courageous men who were able to mobilize public outrage and public support for these green spaces. And so they became political simply because in their quest to stop the misappropriation, not knowing who was behind them, they found that on the other side was state machinery. And so of mm-hmm. course that became that made it that made it very, very much a political, very public challenge. But what is admirable is that these women didn't stop. They pursued it, mobilized, university students got involved, the clergy got involved, and it just became a Kenyan movement to save our green spaces. And to this day, I think the biggest um, reminder of of what the power of one and the power of organizations to make a difference is Uhuru Park and Karura Forest. So can I ask, how did you become involved in these issues? I mean, obviously, um, you were born into it in, in a way. Um, but what what um, guided you uh, to want to continue to make these connections between the environmental and, and the political? Well, I have to admit that I fell into it myself. I didn't. It was not uh, something that I designed. My my training is in biology at the undergraduate level, and then I went to the school of public health. Uh, and studied international health. And I was really interested in how 
um, diseases affect uh, communities and not necessarily individuals and how, how you manage disease epidemics and, 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 and things like that. So I was fascinated by, by that. And I worked, um, was really fortunate to work for uh, six years at the Carter Presidential Center in Atlanta and, and understand just how these, these um, cycles of diseases and cycles of, of poverty are connected and just how much, in fact, in, in retrospect, just how much those dynamics are the same, whether you're dealing with health or environment or education, understanding communities, understanding community needs and meeting communities at their point of need is really critically important, regardless of what um, what the issue is. And so that when I when I was in public health, I thought that's what I would do for the rest of my life. And then I got to a point where I needed a break and I came back to Kenya really just to take a break from from uh, the work that I was doing based in Atlanta. And when I got back to Kenya, uh, of course I was relaxing and my mother said, why don't you help me do this? Why don't you help yeah. me do that? And quite frankly, that's how I got involved in the work of the Greenbelt Movement. I was what? helping uh, my mother sort of do what she needed to do. What, what what were some of the the your your early things that she asked you to do? The main, actually, the main thing that she asked me to do was to manage international affairs, mainly because she was, um, my mother was doing a lot of the fundraising for the movement. She was involved in a lot of the international interactions with, for the movement, given that it was largely a grassroots movement, and she had very competent board members uh, working with her, many of whom were dutifully employed. So she was the one who really coordinated a lot of the activity of the movement. And she was very involved both locally and internationally. And so when I came, I think she felt maybe I could help with the international aspects. So in the early stages, I really worked on international affairs, communications, fundraising, and working on on uh, trying to create, uh, for example, a, a strong website. At the time, believe it or not, that was almost 11 years ago, the, the Greenbelt Movement did not have a website. And so we created the website, and you know, it used to be that you would call and we would describe what we do uh, over the phone 10,000 times a day. <laughs> where, so where did, did the Greenbelt Movement have, have a website uh, when your mother and the movement won the uh, the Nobel Prize? Yes, oh, I mean, good. and and to in many ways, I believe in in serendipity. Sometimes you never know why you you do things. Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to go back to the states after I had I had spent some time here, but I I came and and from 2002 to 2004, I was literally helping build this international relations infrastructure. And so it would be that in 2004, two years later, when I was actually feeling prepared to go back and and explore opportunities back where I had been, that she would win the Nobel Peace Prize. And of course, the Greenbelt Movement and and my mother were thrust into the international's uh, platform. And I couldn't leave, right? I had to be here to support because after all, I was holding the international affairs portfolio. And I, of course, wanted to be part of of this uh, really exciting time in my mother's life. Were, were you with so your mother I, when, when she received the, the call from the I Nobel jealously Commit- wasn't. She uh-huh. received the call with a dear friend of mine, Mia McDonald, who was at the time working with my mother on her autobiography, Unbowed. So they were together physically on the phone. So on, uh, And so she always 
uh, tells the story of of having physically been there. It's quite a special moment. But I I was with my mother uh, a few hours later because she then had to come back to Nairobi. She was a member of parliament at the time. And so she had to come back to Nairobi and deal with, you know, the, the media interest. And, you know, it's interesting because when you're standing outside looking in, you you know, from one day to the next, it was a completely unexpected uh, recognition. And so we were totally unprepared. Mm-hmm. You know, my phone was ringing, her phone was ringing. I remember a call came in from Paraguay and and the the journalist in Paraguay said, you my people in, in Paraguay want to hear from the Nobel laureate. And I, and I remember telling her she's busy with uh, Time magazine. I don't remember who <laughs> she was talking to. And he said, I will hold for as long as needed. And he was going to hold for two hours by the time he, he spoke uh, to her. That, that's funny. I, I spoke uh, in December to the most recent recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, Beatrice Finn and the uh, International oh, Campaign yeah. Against Nobel. And and she has like such a, a similar story. You know, she's working in this tiny NGO. You know, there's three of her and she gets the call and all of a sudden she's besieged. And you know, it's just some like her neighbors who uh, in the office next door just come to help her out to answer phones. It's, it's just it's, quite it was, literally, yeah. quite literally turns your life upside down. And and sometimes you the Nobel, I, I really loved the Nobel Committee and the chairman at the time, and bless his soul, he he he, he passed on a few years later. But they always told us it's a curse because, <laughs> you know, things happen at a speed that you cannot manage. And, and if you if you try and and uh, get overwhelmed by the simple details, then it becomes a bit of a chore. But really, we tried very hard to everybody came to the rescue. People wanted to help. I have funny pictures of people holding two phones, you know, trying to write at the same time and just trying to get to the to respond to to what was a. a totally uncharted territory. We always used to laugh. My mother and I would always talk about the fact that that people who win the Nobel Peace Prize um, are often heads of state and, and they have a total infrastructure behind them. I worked for President uh, Jimmy Carter's organization, the Carter Center. And of course, we when he won that Nobel Peace Prize, I was in Atlanta and we were all marshaled, right? We all, he had a whole battalion of people <laughs> working at and and producing whatever we had to produce in whatever areas we were working. But in this case, here we were in Kenya and we were everything. We were the phone people, phones were dying and you had to pick something else. It was intense, but I have to say it was the most exhilarating time Mm -hmm. of my life. And I say personally, I was so happy to see my mother uh, experience that in retrospect, that those would be the last years of her life, that she would have such a peak uh, and, and have uh, six years to, to enjoy it was, and, and uh, almost actually seven, was something that I feel very satisfied about. Um, so, so speaking about prizes conferred in Scandinavian countries, uh, in the end of May, you'll be in uh, Stockholm for the, the New Shape Prize. Can, can you talk a little bit about what you are most looking forward to at that forum? You know, I am really looking forward to hearing some of the ideas that will be triggered by, by this prize. I have... Um, uh, Definitely seen some of the, I was part of the, the early East African jury here looking through the East African entries. Uh, I, I believe we, we got entries from just about everywhere, but 
just the innovation of, of some of the ideas that are coming up and people who are reimagining how we do and how we think about global governance is really exciting. I mean, the, the United Nations, I have to say, has been brilliant in many ways. And so to replace it or to reimagine it is, is quite a task. So I'm just looking forward to the innovation and creativity of people around the world who are inspired by the, the challenge, which is uh, to reimagine global governance, and certainly the, the handsome prize of $5 million. Well, that, that's what makes it neat. I mean, it's an ideas prize, essentially, for, for a, a very large sum of, of money, which I, I think, just based on my conversations with the people at the, the Global Challenges Foundation, is um, just very wide open. I mean, they, they don't seem to have place like many restrictions on it. And I don't know, it's just like exciting to me to know that um, this will be generating some some different ideas in, in how we manage global risks. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's not expected that it's an individual. People are coming into interesting coalitions. They are coming up with interesting ideas. So I think it's it really is challenging the way we think and and uh, and how we imagine uh, managing in these times of of global um, upheaval, especially around climate. And so, uh, no, I'm excited to see what comes up. You know, you never, you never can tell. And, and certainly the finalists will be presenting in Stockholm and that is going to be most exciting to hear from the people themselves. Uh, well, Wanjira, thank you so much for your time. And, and perhaps I will see you in, in Stockholm. I hope so. You, you should feel like you should be there. This is I'm, I'm be trying. A really I'm trying. Exciting time. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening. That was great. I, I really appreciated Wanjira's perspective and, of course, her reflections about her mother, the most amazing Wangari Mathai. Thanks again to the Global Challenges Foundation for facilitating and sponsoring this episode. And uh, as I mentioned at the outset of the episode, I'll be posting more frequently bonus episodes, bonus content in which I offer some analysis and context around some interesting thing that happened in the news, but perhaps went a little underreported, but is significant nonetheless. And it's kind of snackable content for you uh, foreign affairs nerds out there. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.